As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. I called Max Box's office once and an intern answered. I told him who I was and he's like, oh God, are you going to shut our phone lines down again? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you, you did a story yesterday about the public option. Our phone lines were busted for the whole rest of the day. That's, that's got to feel a little yeah. powerful. It's <laughs> like, uh, yes, then uh, I am going. That is, that is <laughs> that's, what my, that's my job. Yeah. Yes. yes. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Ryan Grimm is the Washington, D.C. bureau chief for The Intercept, what he calls an adversarial progressive publication whose aim is to hold power accountable. The Intercept is funded by eBay founder Pierre Omidyar and initially reported on the documents released by Edward Snowden. Ryan's path from intern at the Washington City Paper to covering Congress at Politico and Huffington Post, and now The Intercept, is a story worth hearing. He also has a recent book called We've Got People, From Jesse Jackson to AOC, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement. The book is published by Strong Arm Press, a publishing house Ryan himself co-founded. And Ryan is also a contributor at Young Turks. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Ryan Grimm and The Intercept. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Ryan. How you doing? I'm good. How's your day so far? Today has been nice. <laughs> yeah. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, my name is Ryan Grimm. I'm the Washington Bureau Chief for The Intercept. I'm also a contributor at the Young Turks, both of which are kind of adversarial, progressive publications. Been covering the left wing of the Democratic Party for about 10, 12 years or so now. Where'd you grow up? I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland. Mm -hmm. There really is no western shore, which is <laughs> kind of tells you a lot about the place's identity. It means the kind of eastern bank of the Chesapeake Bay. It's a, an area that is kind of poor and rural, although there are super rich pockets of it. Dick Cheney has a house over there. Donald Rumsfeld has a house over there. These were your friends growing up? <laughs> my, my friends growing up. <laughs> Actually, one of my friends growing up became a, a pilot, and he said there's a tiny circle uh, that's called Cheney's Chimney where you're not allowed to fly over. 
But because it's called Cheney's Chimney, that means anybody in the air immediately knows precisely <laughs> where <laughs> where Cheney's house is. So what one of the smartest move on the Secret Service's part, but whatever. Uh, not my problem. It's an area whose kind of country character has been protected just by geography. There's no reason to go there except to go there. I mean, if you're going from D.C. to Baltimore to Philadelphia to New York, you bypass it. Were you in like a large plot of land with like farming or? No, uh, I was raised by my brother and I were raised by a single mom there um, in, in a in an area surrounded by farms. But we just we just had a small house in, mm-hmm. a, in a small town called Still Pond, which population of 250 nearest grocery store was about 15 minutes away. Yeah. Um, so surrounded by farms, a lot of chicken growing, a lot of crabbing. Is that area tend to be Trump nowadays? Or it, would, it? it would have been Trump then. My particular county is still Trump now. Other counties that are getting closer to Annapolis are developing and they're succumbing to the kind of suburbanization of the country. And so as the suburbs have grown and creeped over the bridge into the eastern shore, and as the suburbs have swung democratic, it's starting to become a little more democratic. The eastern shore in general is still Republican, and it's represented by a far-right-wing Republican. I could see that changing in, in years ahead if it, if it continues to develop. You know, the more of these cookie-cutter developments you get, the more Democrats you get. That's, that tends to be the... Story pattern. Kind of weird. Very weird. <laughs> Is this the party I'm part of? <laughs> you went to both undergraduate and graduate work in, in Maryland also. Right. Yeah. What did you study? So I went to St. Mary's College of Maryland, which if you live in Maryland is just a delightful place to go. It's public public school, but it's it's carved out of the rest of the public school system. They just get state money and aren't required to do anything with it. And they have developed an extraordinary liberal arts school that is public, which to me should be a model. Middle class and and working class kids deserve fun liberal arts educations too. They don't all have to be rammed into technical schools or apprenticeships or taught carpentry. And so I studied philosophy there. And a good liberal arts thing to good do. Liberal arts thing to do. Yeah, philosophy companies were not hiring. Like philosophy, like political philosophy, or like hard philosophy. Old school philosophy. Yeah. Like uh, continental philosophy. Yeah. Um, Heidegger, Kant. Oh yeah. Those I, kinds of folks. Things that are very difficult to read. Right. <laughs> um, but my school had a kind of blended East-West tradition, and there are a lot of overlaps between continental philosophy, existential philosophy, and kind of Eastern approaches to philosophy. Again, I was lucky, as I've learned later, most American philosophy programs are, are strangely logical and mathematically based. This kind of American deviation that philosophy took is just completely inscrutable to me as a way of kind of examining the purpose of being. Things seem to evaporate as you get very close to them or something like that to me. Yes, me. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I was lucky the program was, was excellent, really teaches you how to think. And then I went to the University of Maryland later, uh-huh. a couple years later. I got a master's in public policy. Right, yeah. How was that yeah. for you? It was great. I had gone back to the Eastern Shore and I was trying to figure out a way to get off of the Eastern Shore. I, was, I love it over there, but there are no jobs. And I obviously didn't know anybody in Washington. And so I figured if I could go to grad school at the University of Maryland, which is just inside the Beltway, then just by virtue of proximity to Washington, I'd somehow be able to find a, a job. And that eventually did work. What made you want to be a reporter? Well, I got fired from everything else. 
<laughs> basically. <laughs> like what? Um, uh, well, I got fired from a lot of waiting uh, jobs. And then I became a pot lobbyist right after uh, grad school. Yeah. And managed to get fired from that, if you can, if you can believe that. I don't work well in um, hierarchical organizations, I learned. And it doesn't sound like to me like a pot lobbyist would be the most hierarchical. Of you know, but it, so it was this place, though, where its idea was we're going to be like all other lobby shops. We're going to wear suits. We're going to create a pack. We're going to raise money. Yeah. We're going to. This, lo- is, the, this is the route to effectiveness to right. actually making this happen. This is how we're going to legitimize yeah. marijuana. So we're going to. We're going to play the game like everybody else plays the game. And they were actually extremely effective. I mean, I've, as you've seen, <laughs> like, here we are. Yeah. This was 2005. Remarkably. I think they had the right instincts because they, they weren't like normal National Organization for Reform Marijuana Laws had been trying the opposite approach for decades, which was, you know, having smoke outs and parties on 420. And, and that's great. Like you, that's good for the cultural side. But you're not winning any friends inside Washington. The way you win friends in Washington is with money and did, votes. Did you seek out that job because of a interest in that in the legalization, or did it come to you sort of randomly? Not not exactly. You know, a lot of life is is what presents itself. Definitely. I was also applying for a job at Perg. Mm-hmm. I would have been doing environmental policy. Um, and I tell you, you learn a lot about people going door to door. Oh, oh, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. I had written an article while I was in grad school. I always liked to write, uh, but I never saw it as a career. I wrote a, an article about the disappearance of LSD in back in 2004, three or four. And the article m- might be the most traffic thing I've ever written. It wow. just exploded um, because of all, I think every boomer uh, in the country read it. Wow. And was like, whoa, what happened to LSD? And so that, because that article had been so popular, that helped me, I think, get an interview with this marijuana <laughs> sure. place. It was I, your gateway article. It was my gateway article. <laughs> it, yeah, it really was. And I had always been an opponent of the drug war going way back. And so it fit with that. It wasn't my animating issue. That would be, you know, climate change or trying to save the world first. But, like, to be able to get a job doing something interesting on a cause I cared about was was a great opportunity, so I took it, yeah. Yeah, better than waiting. It definitely is better than waiting tables, yeah. I remember after getting the job, I was driving through the cornfields on, on the eastern shore, and I don't remember where I was going, and I was thinking, uh, thinking to myself, got to go hit another restaurant, see if I can get, yeah. get another job. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. I, I just accepted a salary job. I don't have to do that. It was this amazing feeling. Yeah. I was probably 27, 28, something like that. And it's a little late for getting a career going in a certain way. Right. Yeah. 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 But you'd had grad school and everything. Yeah. How did you hook up with a city paper? I freelanced for them a little bit while I was at the Marijuana Policy Project. I never stopped kind of just sending articles to different. What kind of things did you write for them? I did one education piece. A student, trying to remember the details of it. A student kept transferred schools and kept getting report cards from that school with grades. That's um, strange. I taught a uh, poetry slam class at uh, DC public schools like once a week for several years. And so I knew a bunch of parents and kids. And one of the parents knew that I wrote and was like, this is 
you should look into this. This is very strange. Mm-hmm. Like, what are they doing? The grades were okay. They knew it was going to mess up their records going forward. Yeah. And it also was just evidence of just not caring. Like, yeah. they, they were never able to explain um, what had happened. Then I did another piece on the slumlord who'd gone to prison um, for being a slumlord. And while in prison, wrote a book on how to get rich being a <laughs> landlord. Enterprising. The, the condition for his release was that he would no longer be engaged in being a slumlord. And I, I was hearing from tenants that, that he was their slumlord. And I interviewed him. And he said that, yes, the, the feds said that I can no longer be a landlord, but I have just put the properties in the names of my <laughs> kids and my wife. But I'm still the one running them. <laughs> we, I used to have this big tape recorder back before digital recorders were uh, something I used. And my tape recorder just sitting there going like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> and so the... Uh, That's a perfect city paper. It was great. Expose, it was it? great. Yeah. Um, and so the feds tried to put him back in prison. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I agreed that I would testify, but only on the condition that they could only ask me what was in the article and I would confirm that like the quotes in the article were, were accurate. And the prosecutor forgot to bring the article oh, to no. the, to court. So he couldn't really. <laughs> and so I just got dismissed off the stand and he got off. Whoa. Like absolutely absurd. So that was, that was another piece. And so then after I got canned from the pot place, then I eventually was able to get an internship at the city paper. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I went up there. Yeah. City Papers generated a lot of notable writers. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that as a place to work? That was really cool. And that's so Washington City Papers, Ta-Nehisi Coates, probably most famous at this point, but yet back then, you know, Catherine Boo, who was one of my favorite authors, had come through there and had written education stories as well. And I was able to connect with her over that. She had left by then, but knowing that it was this place that had produced so many legendary journalists um, was exciting. And the people around me were clearly extraordinarily talented, all of them. They took journalism extremely seriously. I had freelanced for about six months. So I'd been doing journalism full time on my own without any guidance for six months. It was really exciting to have that experience. And the the way the internship was structured really pushed you too. I'm late 20s at this point And you know, not being supported by anybody from the outside, the job paid minimum wage, but then also a freelance fee for whatever you published. And so it incentivized you to publish like crazy. And I quickly learned that the the way to survive, you know, financially was to write cover stories. Because for a cover story, you could make $1,200, $1,500. Whereas for a, a typical front of the book story, you could make $150 or so. Big difference. Yeah, and so it would take three, four days to do a front of the book story, and if it took three weeks to do a cover story, you're you're making a lot more money. Interns very rarely published cover stories um, at the city paper, but I I think I published seven. What was your favorite? While I was there, there are a couple that that compete for the favorite. The one that won a uh, national award, which was very cool for an intern, <laughs> yeah. um, was called the Pain Maker which was about, back into the, into the housing world, it was about this uh, lawyer for landlords who had helped write a lot of the real estate laws in the city and, and helped write, his firm had helped write loopholes into them 
and it had changed the the way that the city was developing. Like it was it was really fueling gentrification. And when I wrote about it, he was in the process of writing a second loophole into the law and then representing developers and other clients who were using those loopholes to... Um, He's creating work for himself. He, yeah. So it was, it, was, it was a cool story about the intersection, uh, the overlap of policymaking and, and business. And he gave me an interview and he even liked the story, even though it was called The Painmaker. <laughs> That's weird. Why would he like it? Uh, I think it helped. You know, yeah. if you're a developer yeah. or, or a landlord, is, yeah. you're like, it's oh, good. this guy makes pain for tenants. That's my man. How were your personal politics developing along these years? I had always, like going back to college, been kind of a radical, like to the left of Democrats kind of person. You know, in the ni late 90s, anti-globalization movement was surging. That's kind of where I first hooked into global politics. Protests against WTO. Yeah, WTO, things like, yeah. IMF, yeah. IMF was, World Bank IMF was A15, April 15th, A16. It was a, this was the 15th and 16th in Washington, D.C., which came after the November 99 Seattle WTO protests. So that was the spring of my senior year. It becomes a formative thing. Right, right. And then you have 9-11, a couple years later, that throws a wrench into that and it kind of ended that movement. On the other hand, it stopped that process of globalization in its tracks. What was the next move along your career path? So I moved to New York. My girlfriend at the time, now wife, was uh, living in New York. I attempted a couple different places and was in an elevator with a guy with a University of Maryland hat. So we started uh, talking and he's like, hey, you know, I... I run a, a stock brokerage place. You should uh, come come work for us. I'm like, that sounds interesting. <laughs> um, little, and, little different track for you. Yeah, and I had done a whole bunch of anti-capitalist stuff, and so I was like, this this sounds perfect. Um, I can learn from the inside. Yeah, yeah. And so I went and took a job there. Worked maybe for about a year, three days a week. I was being tutored on how to take the Series 7 and Series 63, which are the licensing exams for stockbrokers. Passed it. My license might be on file somewhere. And then the rest of the time, selling stocks over the phone uh, to people. And so the first article I ever ended up writing was an expose of this place for the Brooklyn Rail. Were they uh, pissed? I changed their name. On the advice of, I had the guy who had taught the Series 7 class, I showed him a copy of the piece first, and he was like, are you insane? Like, this is a mob-connected outlay. You, you might not like, write any more articles. Like, they will kill you. And I was like, what if I change? Is this like boiler room? Yeah, or yeah it was 100% yeah. boiler room. Yeah. 100% boiler room. And I was like, well, what if I change the name? Are they going to kill me? Yeah. Um. He's like, maybe, <laughs> but there's less of a chance. Do you ever spend time looking behind you? No, I had, I was moving out of New York at that time. So I moved back to the Eastern shore. Yeah. Uh, my mom was uh, not doing well health-wise at all. What did you expose about them that would have been so threatening? So they, they had about 70 brokers mm -hmm. and about nine or 10 licenses and everybody was just trading under the same name. Uh, they had been part of a huge FBI bust 
uh, like a year before I got there. And so we're supposed to not be breaking laws anymore. <laughs> there seems to be a big difference between what you're told to do and what you do right. by the authorities in your, yeah. <laughs> in your line of work. And I wrote, covering. I, I wrote about how there was a compliance officer who, you know, appeared to be on the take. You're not allowed to read from scripts. They were reading from scripts and they were breaking a lot of laws. And the, this is a kind of place that would get banned in a certain number of states and then change its name and then and then keep going. Shrug it off. Yeah. And so the big it was a bigger story about just the the pen, industry. Penny anti corruption in the industry itself. Yeah. But certainly exposed all sorts of crimes that this place was committing. And didn't raise that Wall Street world in your estimation too much. No. It was not impressive. But it was also not at the heart. It was like one of these places that was just riding. It's more parasitical. It was a parasitical place. Yeah. Like it showed like the, the extreme number of parasitical. Like there's this. There's, there's money, there's parasites. Entire industry of, yeah. of parasites just riding on the, just leeching off of the fat of the system. <laughs> Which itself is leeching off of other yep. things. Yeah, Completely. Yeah. Oh, and then I worked in a middle school, in my own middle school. Yeah. For the next like year and a half or so before going to grad school, so pretty pretty varied career. How'd you land at Politico? My internship was up at the City Paper, and I extended it as long as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. And Politico was going to be called Capital Leader, mm-hmm. and it was going to be a, a kind of standard Capitol Hill publication. Mm-hmm. And that I got hired to work on that. And then before we launched, they hired people from the Washington Post: Jim Vandehei, John Harris, Mike Allen shuttered Capital Leader before it even launched and changed the name to Politico. Mm-hmm. And they told everybody who'd been hired for the Capital Leader, you can try out for jobs at Politico, mm-hmm. which was actually a really lucky situation in a way because, you know, people at that age and that place in their career say to themselves, I know that I could do this job. I know I don't have the qualifications to do this job, but I know I have the talent mm-hmm. and I could do it if, if somebody just gave me a chance. Mm-hmm. And so here, through a fluke of all of these different circumstances, I was able to try my hand at a job that I never could have been hired for if I'd have just come in off the street. Because the capital leader was hiring kind of the dregs of the city. Whereas once it became Politico, and they were upping their salaries, and, and they had these stars, and they, were, they upped their ambitions. Different credentials. Different credentials were needed to get in the door. But if you're already in the door, you could... You can take a shot. And they fired almost everybody. But not from you. From Capital Leader. So I, Ken, me and Ken Vogel. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> Actually. And is that um, because you had kind of honed that ability to knock things out? Because, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was, I, I broke news. Yeah. That's what. Uh, what does that mean, break news? It means you bring a story into the world that would not exist. That's what, what it means to me. That yeah. would not exist if you hadn't done it. Yeah. So actually, and I, and I teamed more than, up. More than being first to it. To me, it's more than being first to it. Because sometimes you see somebody saying, you know, they broke the news and then like five minutes later, everybody else was about to do it. That doesn't seem right, as exciting right. like as I, a news story. Like I broke, like for instance, I technically broke the news that Elizabeth Warren was going to run for president. Yeah. This cycle. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Like. That was going to happen. No, somebody, <laughs> somebody was going to get that. <laughs> so the, like the, the piece that maybe saved my job, I actually teamed up with Ken on. It was about a congressman from Philadelphia who had had an affair uh, with a woman and had paid her off to be silent about it 
but then he lost his reelection in 2006. Then he wants to welch on it. And he wasn't paying. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because he's like, well, what, talk if you want. Yeah. I'm not paying. And she, But she had the agreement on paper. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's an enforceable agreement. Well, I believe it was. Yeah. And so her lawyer happened to be a source of mine from city paper days because uh, he did landlord tenant work also. Yeah. And he was like, I see you're doing national So stuff he handed now. you the story. So he's like, here. Yeah. Here's something, here's something I'm like, wow, this is, this is great. Closer to the one that you're talking about, I was the first to report that the Democrats were going to cancel their debate in Las Vegas hosted by Fox News. And I had three or four sources saying it. And it would have gotten out anyway. But what helped is that the AP, after my story went up, reported the opposite. That mm-hmm. no, it was still on. Yeah. And I told John Harris, I remember calling me, are you sure about this? He was nervous. I'm like, no, no, no. My sources are 100% sure. It's off. Stay with it. Stay with it. We're good. And they trusted me and they stuck with it. Mm -hmm. And it was true. It was off. And like in hindsight, thinking of a reporter in their 20s, like those are are a couple good scoops. Like you're at that point, you're going to be like, all right, let's, let's give this person a shot, even though they don't have any idea what they're doing. Before we were even publishing, we were doing mock versions. And my job was to cover the uh, Senate Democrats uh, election night, so November of 2006. And I stayed at the uh, hotel where they're having their party until like 4 a.m. And I finally see Harry Reid going up an escalator. And I like, sprint after him and chase him to his car. And just before he's getting the door, I can get, I get off a question, and I'm like, who? You know, I'm the only reporter there, of course. Yeah. No, nobody else is crazy enough to be there at 4 a.m. Yeah. Like, who's going to be your your leadership team now that you've won the majority? Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to uh, same team, going to keep the same team in place. Yeah. And I'm like, who's that? <laughs> like no idea. Like I no idea. He's like, <laughs> he's like, he's like Dick and Chuck. I'm like, oh yeah, of course, Dick and Chuck. And I'm like Googling <laughs> Senate Democratic leadership. Dick? Uh, Dick Durbin and Chuck Schumer. Yeah. But that's how ignorant I was of national politics. I followed it. I cared a lot about the 2000 election, the 2004 election. And I was interested in, I covered the midterms for Washington Monthly. But there's so many levels. But yeah, yeah. it just, and, and I try to remind myself of that all the time. That like, even people who are following things fairly closely don't, know much beyond the kind of surface level. Um, so it took me a while to get up to speed on like who these people were. Is that a high for you when you have a chance to break the news? Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. There's a competitiveness to journalism that if you don't have it, it's not going to be much fun. Probably. Yeah. What'd you learn at Politico? I was lucky again in the first year, uh, my job was basically as a feature writer on Congress which I understand why they would make that decision. I'd been at City Paper writing long feature stories, and and that helped me learn Congress while I was writing about it. Like if you're if you were given an assignment at ten a, ten a.m. and have to file by four, you don't have time to figure out who the majority <laughs> majority whip is. You should already know that. But if it's a feature and you have three days to work on it, then you have time to to figure it out. And so it's a little bit like going back to school here. Sure, yeah. sure. And then so then this is my second year at Politico. I was I became a beat reporter on Congress, working under some of the best, like the veterans on 
you know, Capitol Hill who had been there for decades and which was really exciting to be able to like see them do their work. And then toward the end of that year, the financial crisis hits. And that was an extraordinary experience to watch Henry Paulson every night coming over to Capitol Hill and staying well past midnight while the global economy is on the brink of complete Armageddon. Watching that up close was, it was an education. What came next? So the Huffington Post was was rising by then, Mm -hmm. but they hadn't really gotten much into original journalism. Sam Stein was... Everybody could just blog there. Everybody was just blogging there, yeah. yeah. Sam Stein covered the uh, 2008 campaign for them, um, but otherwise they didn't have any reporters. Uh, Sam reached out and asked if I would be interested in coming over to be their congressional reporter. And I didn't know if I, I was ready to cover Congress without the support of like an entire team, but I went for it. Again, circumstances made me super lucky. I was the only kind of left-wing reporter who had a Hill badge. Like you need a particular credential um, from a particular outlet just to get into the Capitol. And once you're in the Capitol, it's fish in a barrel. The members of Congress and senators are walking everywhere. When they're coming for a vote, you just walk up to them, ask a question, they answer it. They don't even ask who you are typically. And so if you're asking the right questions, you're going to get news constantly. And I had different questions than the rest of the media because I was writing for a kind of a progressive audience. So I wanted to know, for instance, where do you stand, Senator, on public option? And every person that I asked that was, that was a news story. And it could be a news story three weeks later as they're moving on it. And so you had this entire blogosphere that was writing about Congress and about what Obama was trying to get done, but none of them had eyes and ears on the Hill. So my reporting would be the fodder for this entire blogosphere until maybe a year later when I think Talking Points Memos finally got a reporter credentialed there. Uh, It was before Twitter was a driving national force for news as well. And so I'd be in a scrum and somebody would make kind of news that I was interested in and I'd look around at the other reporters there and kind of gauge like okay who's here like okay i see the post i see the times i see roll call i see three trade reporters i can take my time with this like nobody's nobody's gonna break this if i saw politico maybe they would quickly go back and write it but now now that's gone because now you you're in a scrum you see people tweeting um and so the news goes from the mouth of the senator directly into the bloodstream and so you're so you can't turn those into the like i was doing four or five stories a day right fairly easily someone else can sit at home and watch the tweets about, right and other right yeah, yeah. Hmm. in trying to break those stories and in kind of coming from that left wing bent did you sort of try to use that to push people did you kind of interview with an agenda in the back of your head i mean you, you could certainly call it that so for instance, like the Huffington Post was clearly supportive of a public option being included. And so as people were wavering on it, we would ask them about that. We hear you're wavering on public option. And then by publicizing where they are, they would get pressure from their constituents. And so in that sense, we're, we're feeding a particular viewpoint. 
and and we would do the same thing with uh, financial reform when Wall Street interests were trying to weaken particular elements of it, whether it was the CFPB or something else. We'd go in and ask, you know, we heard at, in the meeting that you said you're okay with uh, a commission structure for the CFPB, and you have a commission structure that things gets corrupted like immediately, um, rather than a single director, which is much a much stronger. So, well, you know, that's on the table, and then we report that it's on the table, and then they'd get a lot of pressure. And I enjoyed that. Sure. I called Max Box's office once, and an intern answered. I told him who I was, and he's like, oh, God, are you going to shut our phone lines down again? <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you, you did a story yesterday about the public option. Our phone lines were busted for the whole rest of the day. And, that's got to feel a little yeah. powerful. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> Uh, yes, then uh, I am going. That is, that is <laughs> that's what I'm my doing. that's my job. Yeah. Yes. yes. So, can, can you connect me with Scott, please? There was certainly a link between those those things, but not 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 an organized one. Was there a point along the way where you get named bureau chief, Washington bureau chief at the Huffington Post? Yeah. So Dan Frumkin moved on. Uh, he was bureau chief, and I think I think he moved on in 2010. Small, you know, five-person bureau at that point. And um, Nico Pitney asked if I would do it. I told him, no, I, don't, I, I just want to be up here reporting. And he's like, look, you can continue to be up there reporting, but if you don't do it, then somebody else will. We're going to hire somebody, and you probably won't like them. You'll be reporting to right. them. Right. And I was like, that is, a, more very, ways than one. That is a very strong <laughs> argument. <laughs> so what did that yeah. actually mean for your job? Not much. And so I continued writing and reporting. I had a view that if you just put the right people in the right place and just get out of their way, then that's how you're going to be most successful. Did you get um, to hire? Eventually, yeah. So in 2011, we got bought by AOL. Hmm. And all of, all of a sudden, we had millions of dollars to spend. And so we blew up from five or six people to a couple of years later, like a 50-person bureau. Did it get better by that? Um, we certainly were able to cover a lot more, but we were in the doldrums of the back end of the Obama administration where it was hard to do anything. Right. It was all, all you could do was like prevent against cuts to social security and other austerity that was being pushed by Democrats and luckily blocked by the tea party, which, which wouldn't countenance a single penny in tax increases. And so right. they kept blowing up every grand bargain, right. which, good. So they didn't cut Medicare, they didn't cut Medicaid, they didn't cut Social Security, even though Democrats were willing to. What were you thinking as you saw the Trump rise to power? A couple different things. One was that the, the way that he was being covered was just obscene. His rallies were being covered live every night in billions in primetime coverage um i saw an estimate of six billion of the total coverage. yeah who knows what it really was but. That, that sounds about right and we, we actually tried to push the media into basically not covering him yeah and it, that didn't work <laughs> um i wrote a piece in uh february of 2016 with zach carter that i'm very proud of called you know how how trump could win and if you read it today it feels like it could have been written like the week after the election. It argues that Hillary Clinton's very vulnerable in the Rust Belt, particularly over NAFTA, mm -hmm. but that 
people should not assume that the Rust Belt is as democratic as they seem to think it is. Mm -hmm. Pointed out that Wisconsin had a Republican governor, Michigan had a Republican governor, Pennsylvania had recently had a Republican governor and had a Republican legislature, had a Republican senator, and that there was every reason to believe that his his message against hers would would resonate in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Notable states to pick. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we and we zeroed in we zeroed right in on them. And I don't remember if we mentioned this in the piece or not, but you know, in twenty twelve Obama had bailed out the auto industry and was still getting a lot of credit for that in Michigan and the rest of the Rust Belt. Whereas Hillary Clinton People, I think, probably assumed that she wouldn't have even bailed out if she had a chance. But maybe even if she did, like by by 2016, that's kind of washed out in the public's thought process about about who to vote for. We certainly did sense that there was a populist moment that that Trump was um, prepared to take advantage of that Democrats weren't. What do you think it says about? the way the media is structured, that they all fell for the Trump rally coverage and not all, but obviously the big cable channels and right. and, and everybody followed with their coverage and everybody hammered Hillary on emails. And it was not a high point in coverage of the political process. I mean, it shows that we kind of know that there's a nihilism in coverage and that what gets ratings is going to is going to get covered. There's no sense of like public service around it. And so... Or there isn't, they do it despite that. I mean, right, I mean, right, right, right. There's no there's no sense of public service driving the decision making. But there is, a, there's a sense somewhere in there. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and because so, you've hung out with these reporters. You right. Know, they care. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so it also shows Trump's ability for getting ratings. He has a knack for creating controversies so that people follow him. Yeah, and if, from the media's perspective, you're not going to air uh, every Bernie Sanders rally. Because they're all the same. They're all the same. He's sticking <laughs> to his message. I mean, he's added new pieces, yeah. but now he adds those new pieces in, in all of his speeches. Yeah. And there's a lot of discipline. Yeah, there was that one famous moment that I wrote about in, back in 2016 or so when Sanders was giving a victory speech, and he's like down in the bottom corner without any sound, and the, the shot that they're showing is an empty podium that just says waiting for Trump. People would rather wait, wait to see Trump. To see Trump than yeah. watch. It's a better reality TV show. Yeah. And they don't, you know, the, also the media doesn't like Bernie Sanders or the message. Some do. So, some in the media do, but the, exa- the executives, yeah. Yeah. Uh, executives certainly don't. Yeah. Yeah. So you seem to have made this turn to the intercept after the Trump election. What occasioned that and why are you here? And what is The Intercept? The Intercept was founded in 2014 by um, Laura Poitras, Glenn Greenwald, and Jeremy Scahill as a place to continue to do reporting on the Edward Snowden documents. And the idea behind it, it Piero Midyar, an eBay billionaire, who kicked in the money to launch it, his idea, and his and Glenn and Jeremy and Laura's idea was that in this national security era, like there needed to be a publication that had the technological sophistication to not be hacked and to be able to handle sensitive documents um, in a sophisticated and careful way. It needed to be a place where whistleblowers could send documents or information and needed to have 
uh, the legal resources to fend off lawsuits from the rich, powerful, or the government um, who were opposed to the reporting mm-hmm. that was being done by the place, and that no outlet like that existed, and that one should. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that was founded in 2014, but at some point. Huffington Post hired a new editor-in-chief. Ariana Huffington left. We got a new editor-in-chief. And it was clear she was going to bring in her own team. You know, but several of us left. Not quickly, but, you know, over the course of several months. Mm-hmm. The Intercept was really the only place that I thought of about going seriously because it has the willingness to go after power. It's not tied to the news cycle. How did you land the job? Well, I had known Betsy Reed, who's the editor-in-chief, mm-hmm. for like 20 years or so. I pitched her the article on the corrupt chop shop where I had worked. Um, I had already published it in the Brooklyn Rail. I didn't know anything about journalism. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, we tend to do original <laughs> things that are original <laughs> you can't to keep us. publishing the same article. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm, <laughs> I'm learning a lot about journalism. But I, I always remembered that she wrote back to me in a polite way, mm-hmm. um, much nice. more polite than... Almost anybody would be. Then anybody should be. And yeah. like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> you want to publish the thing you've published elsewhere? Yeah. You know, she had been an editor at The Nation, and I knew people who had worked for her and um, were fans of hers. I had known Jeremy um, for a very long time as well, known Glenn for for a very long time, and had been admirers of their work. They were looking to expand into politics in a way that they hadn't been before mm-hmm. like, so they, they you know start with national security and civil liberties they expanded from there into criminal justice which is a natural move from there into immigration politics which is another natural move you know from there into environmental crimes and environmental coverage another natural move from there it's not hard to say you know well let, we're, we're doing politics now yeah so let's let's do it even more robustly why do you think it's called the intercept well, that goes back to its national security um, roots. Roots that, and an, an intercept is when the NSA or some other agency snoops on your phone call um, and intercepts it. I assume it was a, it was a play on that. That that now we're going to be the ones that are that are intercepting documents and information, but instead of intercepting it and putting it into a giant database and using it for our imperial agenda. Uh, will be publishing it and revealing it to the public. So did you come in as bureau chief, Washington mm-hmm. bureau chief? Yeah. 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 And what is the team like for politics here? So we've got, um, I mean, a smaller team than than the Huffington Post, but Lee Fong, you know, covers corruption, Michaela Lacey, and Aida Chavez, who cover Congress and, and politics. Alex Emmons covers national security. And we've got two two editors, uh, Mariam Sala and Nausicaa Renner. And then we have a handful of contractors, Kate Aronoff, Rachel Cohen, um, Cleo Chang, Malika Jabali, some others who like write you know, regularly or semi-regularly for us as well. And they all kind of have their particular focuses, but, but because we're so small, everybody's kind of a generalist as well. What do you most like to cover? It totally depends. And what I love about journalism is being able to move around a lot. Mm-hmm. 
like whatever I'm interested in <laughs> at the I, moment. I, I but, read but power basically. I read an article that you wrote about kind of behind the scenes in the decision to finally move to impeachment. Mm-hmm. The frontline Democrats and their thinking and Pelosi and sort of in, and it was a seemed like it was highly sourced, like had a lot. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the process of putting together an article like that? Since I've now been covering the House of Representatives since 07, I've built up a fairly you know deep roster of sources who will who will talk to me on background mostly. You know, which which means not connecting their name to it, but you, know, you can use the information they give me. It has to start generally with something. You know, how that starts depends. I had been working on a story about how the kind of rank and file of the House Democratic Caucus was getting completely frustrated with the frontliners who were holding up impeachment because they were they were getting hammered back at home. The rank and file Democrats. Right. They were starting to get challenged by uh, by the uh, many people who think that Trump should be impeached, right? On the left, and and so people were running against them. There were more than a hundred primary challenges had yep. had creeped up. It was really coming to a head, and so I've been working on that story. And then the dam broke when these seven frontliners came out. Yeah, and because I'd been working on that story, I had a lot of insight into what had been going on behind the scenes and so while the rest of the media was like was glamorizing the seven who'd come out as the, the leaders like, the leaders yeah. of this i was able to kind of do a kind of opposite piece which is like it's true that when they published their story the dam broke but they were the dam and that's like crediting the dam breaking for the flood like it's flooding because the water was pressuring the dam. Well, and a lot of it was Ukraine too, right? Sure, you yeah, need uh, you needed yeah. some type of spark and to, something that would make it easier for them to break their dam, right? And yeah. but if if there hadn't been all of that pressure and organizing, then it's very likely that 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 story washes by like every other Trump scandal. It's just another Trump scandal. Yeah, you characterized the intercept as sort of among the adversarial progressive mm-hmm. groups that you'd work for. How does that direct your coverage and what you decide to go after, that kind of mindset? Well, it's, you, you just have to constantly remind yourself that, that that's what you're there for, that you're not there to cozy up, that there's, there are enough people doing that, and that you know, if you're not challenging... Do you think of yourself as at war with the administration, at war with the right wing of the Democratic Party. When I interviewed a a Washington Post reporter recently, she said, the editor there said, we're not at war, we're at work. Mm -hmm. And that was the attitude. Is it different here? We're aware that there's a war going on, which some outlets would kind of prefer to believe that there isn't one going on. I don't necessarily see us as soldiers in that war. We are certainly actors in it, and we have to remember that. We have to remember that what we do doesn't just describe what's happening, but it, it can shape it as well, and that's okay. That's, that's an observation about reality. That's not, that's not an agenda. We certainly are more willing to call out corruption or 
something else as you know normatively wrong uh, than another outlet might be. Where do you place yourself in sort of the progressive reporting ecosystem? Who else is going at it in a similar way? Who, who's like an ally? Who do you compete with? How do you see that that world? I mean, I think it, it depends sometimes reporter by reporter in a way. You wouldn't say that New York Magazine is like a mouthpiece or an organ of the adversarial left, but Eric Levitt's, his writing yeah. might be. Yeah. Ryan Cooper might be. Zach Carter and Daniel Marin's over at the Huffington Post, even if the Huffington Post broadly isn't isn't that. I think the New Republic has some designs in that direction. Um, new ownership over there. Yeah, and sorting things new out. attitude. more, Much more take-based, much more opinion-based than The Intercept. What's unusual about us is that we're not doing a whole lot of just analysis. Like we're affecting the conversation by breaking news. And it's more reporting new, than right. opinion journalism. Right. Yeah. The, but the reporting is driven by a particular opinion. Like right. why Like why did we cover Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's race so closely? But when we covered it, we covered it. You know, we did news stories about it. Well, you also have a book out. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Ocasio-Cortez, yes. you have a book out called We've Got People from Jesse Jackson to AOC, right? What, mm-hmm. what made you want to write that and what did you say in it? In some ways, I'd been working on it for 10 years or so, but I hadn't really considered putting it out as a book until uh, AOC won her primary. And I think it was on the way back from New York to Washington where I was like, you know, it's people finally care about this. And people care for a reason. Like the left is now flexing some muscle. The a rise of kind of Elizabeth Warren from 2012, 2009 to you know, 14 or 15 until she passed on the presidential run, then Bernie Sanders' run for president galvanized so much energy, followed then by Ocasio-Cortez winning, to me showed that now there's there really is enough to carry a story here. Because I also didn't want to write a book that just described how cynical and corrupt the Democratic Party was, because what's the point of that? If you don't have an alternative that's viable, then you're then you're just engaging in kind of nihilism. Um, Do you see the party as cynical and corrupt? A lot, a lot of them, yeah, a, like a, a huge, a huge element of it. Do you mean like these frontline Democrats that are just maybe representing their districts or? Uh, position for that, or what? What do you mean? I mean, so it, it, who are you talking about? It 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 depends. There is a. This is kind of what the entire book is about. Yeah. There was a decision made in the 1980s to get away from what they were referring to as the special interest, by which they meant civil rights, environmentalism, you know, workers' unions, and to focus more on raising money from corporations, using that money to do more sophisticated polling, better 30-second ads, hire better consultants, craft a message that could appeal to these swing voters and win on the margins that way. Even if you believe at the time that that that's your best path to fighting the kind of Reagan backlash, over time that becomes just thoroughly corrupting and it it becomes just about corporate PAC money and big money. When they first set about this 
strategy. They controlled the House of Representatives, and their argument was, we control the House. You all need to pay up. You're not getting anything from us. But you know, you're giving all this money to Republicans who used it to beat Jimmy Carter and used it to take the Senate. You got to pay us, too, or your bills aren't going anywhere. But we're not doing anything for you. We're not going to give you any favors, but this is the way things are going to be done now. And of course, that that is entirely predictable in how that unfolds over the years. And so you wind up with people who believe that you need to satisfy the urges of all of these uh, big money and corporate interests that are giving to both sides now. Who are giving to who are giving to both sides now, and and there's nobody um, who's making a, a. a kind of bold populist argument that you need to expand the electorate, go register more voters. Whether that is a sincerely held belief or it's a result of corruption, it's, it's the same product. How do you see the presidential nomination process right now? There seems to be like coverage, negative coverage of Buttigieg, for example, uh, pretty frequently. Where are you coming from right. in, in this well, uh, Buttigieg is a good case study of our work because he doesn't get a lot of um, examination in uh, in the mainstream media. Most of them don't. It seems no, to right. me. Yeah, most of them don't. Yeah. And so there's a, a kind of a, amazing lack of deep reporting about about each of them. Right, and and so there's a lot of interesting stories to write about Buttigieg. And so you know, one of the narratives around him is that he has roughly 0% support in the black community. That is a vein worth tapping. Like, why is that? So let's explore his record. He's been mayor of South Bend for eight years. That's his credential for running for president. And so it's entirely fair to compare what he says he's going to do as president to what he actually did as mayor. And so we've done a couple stories on that front and then a, a, a story on his very odd relationship with uh, some black leaders in South Carolina where they touted them as supporters of his Douglas plan when they actually had told him specifically we're not supporting this plan. Looked like poor staff work to me. Aggressive staff work. (laughs) Um, But would poor staff work be done to elected officials of any other race? Like, can you imagine rolling out an op-ed? I'm pretty sure that every... Democratic candidates doing their very best to appeal to that segment of the population with a weight that they have in the primaries. Yeah, but try to imagine um, you're rolling out an op-ed supporting a, a plan for farmers in Iowa, and you reach out to a white state senator or a white state representative the, the, and the chairman of the Farmers Caucus in Iowa, and you ask them, can you would you sign this? We're going to have 400 farmers and we'd like three serious elected officials on the top of this. Can can we use your names? Yeah. And they say no. Yeah. And you go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah. That's very hard to imagine happening to. Well, I've, you know. fr- from having been inside one presidential campaign, I, I don't put error past yeah, anybody. Yeah, yeah. No, anything, I mean, any, any yeah. incompetence is possible. It yeah. seems like it's so, the next so level. It seems yeah. like you're having fun doing what you're doing. Is yeah, that right? I am. Yeah. I am, yeah. What's, what's the long-term plan for Ryan Grimm? Oh, no long-term plan. Yeah. Do what um, you're doing right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. If Trump wins re-election, if Obama f- 
pushes Joe Biden into the nomination and, and he wins and is a catastrophe and brings in some fascist regime or loses and brings about a second Trump administration. The game certainly changes and it, it does become harder and harder to stay invested in it. It does seem to me like Trump is the modest favorite for re-election. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to believe that. Hard to believe. Yeah. Is there a question that I failed to ask that you'd like to be asked? No, I think you've, uh, I think you've mostly, mostly covered it. Yeah. Well, it's been an honor to talk to you today. I really enjoyed it. Anything yeah, else you want to say? No, I think that's it. If anybody has read the book and liked it, I would. The best thing they can do for me is review it. Yeah. Um, the more reviews, the better. You can trash it all you want as long as you give it five stars. <laughs> um, no, which I had. What, what feedback are you getting about the book? Somebody did that in my first book, which was yeah. hilarious. They like ripped it to shreds and then gave it five stars. I'm like, what was the sucker. first book? It was called "This Is Your Country on Drugs." Um, it's a kind of social history of drug use. Yeah. The feedback so far has been great. Did you like catch any of that AOC wave with your with readers of it? The movie mm-hmm. about her, the documentary, yeah, yeah, yeah did yeah. so well, and, and yeah, 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 yeah I, mean, I think so. She just um, has a she has a knack on the other side of evil of of attracting attention, kind of like right. Trump does. Mm-hmm. No, she's quite good at it. Yeah, people will learn a lot about her in that book and about the race. And my favorite thing that people have told me about the book is that it's very readable. That that's they've a, read it. That's a plus. It's yeah. like a four hundred page book. Yeah. But I've talked to people who plowed through it in a day or two. Yeah. Um, it's a page turn, turn. Like that's the, what's what's your favorite like anecdote in the book? Oh man, there's so so many fun ones. There are a lot of ones that I like with Rahm Emanuel, who's sort of like the antagonist of the book. Um, he, he is a a larger than life character. Yeah. Yeah. Good Maybe, antagonist. Yeah. And there's one where they're trying to push through the stimulus. And, you know, he spent 2006 and in some degree 2008 making sure that the House Democratic Caucus is as conservative as possible by beating progressives in primaries, by going out and recruiting the most conservative Democrats he could find. So he creates this far more conservative than necessary caucus. And then he's trying to push through the stimulus and he goes down to Capitol Hill and it's all these blue dogs that he helped get elected and they're demanding he cut this and cut that and cut this and instantly just cuts, 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 cuts. He baked in 10% plus unemployment by doing that and baked in basically the Tea Party wave. It's painful to go back and think about what was possible and there's anecdote after anecdote about the decisions that the Obama administration made at this moment where they had so much which the, which they are potential suffering a bit in history i think at least left-wing history now for sure yeah. and yeah and if they if they ram biden into the nomination no, i think they'll continue to suffer i, I definitely sense that's your point of view yeah. <laughs> we'll see thank you so much thank you that was ryan grimm and the intercept he's at theintercept.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.